Hello, and welcome to Series 4, Episode 19. And Rebecca, just to let you know, this is the penultimate episode. The word that I learned the what male, it The male solarist. So, last Wait, this one. Is this the... So, hang on. This is the last one of males. Last but one. Of... Yeah. After this one, there is one more. And that's it. No more males. That's it. Oh, that's gone so quick. Okay. 20 episodes. Wow. So just to remind people who you had this week before we uh, crack on. Billy Idol. Mm -hmm. Phil Fearon. Leo Sayer. John Fox. Joe Jackson. Sydney Youngblood and Jimmy Somerville. Yes, I did. So, um, have you found it? There was a mix of artists this week, and like, even though some of them had similar genres, I still found those really big differences in them. Um, like, you'd have different ends of the spectrum of genre. You know what I mean? So, I like mm -hmm. not being able to compare them. Because I think when we did bands, there was a lot of comparing, like, oh, they didn't sound like them. Because week to week, they'd be like the similar genre. Um, and I've liked that about, especially like this week, because they've been so different. So it's nice to just listen and make opinions about that particular artist without them thinking down the line, oh, they sounded better than them because I couldn't compare them. Um, and this week, with them being so different, there was such a like vast variety of vocal ranges. Um, even in like some of the artists, some of the artists I had this week could their vocals could go dead high pitch to quite deep, like in one song. Uh, so I really enjoyed listening to those changes this week and that those differences. Okay. So um how many number ones, if any? Yeah, so I think this week is like a filler week in the charts i don't think any of them are big artists i don't think any of them had big songs i think they were just you know doing what they were doing getting songs in the charts but not necessarily hitting it big um maybe we had a few number twos so i think i have put some number ones so i've gone with whoa how many did i do i didn't write it down let me count I think it's only two that I went with. Yes, I went with two. Okay. Two. Well, you did have two number ones. Oh, I thought I was How, However, neither were in the 80s. Okay. So, so in a one, sense, you've had none. Yeah, like 80s-wise. So, obviously, I've still listened to them, and I'm not 100% sure which you said. I know when you send me songs you send them in the chronological order of when they were released and got in the charts. So when you say they're not in the 80s, that could be either the first couple of songs that you give me or it could be the last ones. Mm -hmm. So obviously I, I don't know. But I have gone with Hot in the City by Billy, Billy Joel for one of them. That Billy Joel? Billy Joel? Billy Idol. You've only been listening to him all week and you've already got his name wrong. I don't know why I said that. Uh, Billy Idol, Hot in the City by Billy Idol. I went with that one, and that, that's the first song that I listened to. So that could be out the 80s. And then the other was Thunder in My Heart by Leo Sayer. I think that might be an 80s song, so I could be wrong. 
Okay. But they're the two that I went with, and I think I'm completely wrong. I found it really hard to pinpoint any number one, so we will see. Okay. So let's talk music. Let's talk Billy Idol. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I've gone with rock and synth pop for his genre. He is definitely an 80s artist. So I'll be shocked if Hot in the City is out of the 80s. Um, but just going on the placement of where it is, it could be out. Um, he definitely knows that 80s sound. And it's, I don't know, like it's really embedded in his music. And that's why I put synth pop. I feel like he is that bit of a rock star because he dresses like a rock star. He looks like a rock star. Um, he kind of acts like a rock star in the videos. Um, he likes to strip off and be topless quite a lot. Um, and so I've, I've gone with rock, but the, the way his music sounds, the way he's got the beats in there, that is very 80s and very, uh, very um, electronic. So I think that's in there somewhere. He had quite a variety of songs and was obviously very talented. And I feel like even his calmer, smoother songs he was able to put that rock spin on it, um, but still make it catchy and still make it, like, listenable is not a word, but, you know, still makes you want to listen to it. I feel like he had a short success um, just because he doesn't, he doesn't tend to age and they all kind of, like, when I look at the videos, it's like they follow on from one another. But I could be completely wrong. And what I like about his songs is they're not... They're not just about lyrics. He doesn't go deep. He just sings. He just plays, like, the music's just there. And, yeah, like, it's just all about that music in the 80s. Um, Video-wise, there's not much about his videos. He's just the centre of them. Um, They're quite simple. Cradle of Love was the first proper video that I had with a story behind it. Like, um, there was, like, two actors acting out scenes in it. Um, and got to the last song, Shock to, Shock to the System. That, scre- oh, that screams 90s. So he was out of the 80s there. It could have been late 80s. Don't know. But he, that screams 90s. His hair was like sticking up, like individual spikes. And if that was an 80s style, we've not seen that yet. Um, he looked very 90s to me. Okay. So Billy Idol. Born William Michael Albert Broad. Okay. He's from Stanmore, Middlesex. He's been active since 1976. Oh, wow. Okay. He probably went through the 80s then. So he's a singer, songwriter, musician, and there's a guitarist is when, he's, when I say musician. Oh, yeah. I did notice he played the guitar in one of his videos. Yep. Um, his genres are punk rock, glam rock. New Wave and Post-Punk. Okay, New Wave hits the 80s, the pop type of thing, I guess. So Idol is half Irish, as his mum is from Ireland. In 1958, when Idol was two years old, his family moved to New York. The family returned four years later and settled in Dorkin, Surrey. In 1971... The family moved to Bromley and later moved to Worthing in West Sussex. They move about, don't they? 
It was while at Worthing High School for boys, Billy coined his stage name as a chemistry report um, had the teacher describing him as idol, as in I-D-L-E. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, So he used idol over idol Mm. due to its similarity to Monty Python star Eric Idol. Right. So Eric Idol of the Monty Pythons was I-D-L-E. So he went with I-D-O-L. To not get that. Which, to be honest, for for rock star, pop star, is probably a better surname anyway. Billy Idol compared to Billy Idol. Yeah. As much as they're pronounced the same when you look at it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So in 1975, Idol began attending the University of Sussex to pursue an English degree. But um, he left after one year. He then joined the Bromley contingent of Sex Pistols. Bear in mind, he also had lived in Bromley. So obviously, I guess, still had friends or whatever there. Um, So, yeah, he joined the uh, Bromley contingent of Sex Pistol fans, which was an organised gang that travelled to see the band wherever they played. So he was obviously influenced by the Sex Pistols. Yeah. In late 1976, Idol joined retro rock band Chelsea as a guitarist. And it was lead singer Gene October who styled Idol's image and advised him to lose his short-sighted glasses for contact lenses and dye his hair blonde with a crew cut. For a retro 1950s rocker look. So originally oh, he wasn't blonde and he had glasses. Blonde. So there you go. Mm. Can't picture that at all. Idol and the band bassist Tony James quit the um, band and co founded the band Generation X with you know Idol. What? Switching from guitarist to the role of frontman. Yes. Do you know what's really weird? How did he even fall into the art oh, through the Sex Pistol fans? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was like, he did was doing an English degree, and then all of a sudden it took a three sixty. Yeah. Sex Pistols. Yeah, yeah. Carry on. So, um, Generation X were one of the first punk bands to appear on BBC television, the music programme Top of the Pops. So they were not one of the first bands, but one of the first punk rock bands. And what year is this then? This is before the 80s, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So this was, so as I said, he was active since 1976. So we're saying late 70s. Yeah, okay. So 77, possibly, 78, I'd guess. So although a punk rock band, they were inspired by mid-1960s British pop. And while bands like The Clash and The Sex Pistols were saying no Elvis, Beatles or Rolling Stones, we were being honest about what we liked. And the truth was, we were all building our music on The Beatles and The Rolling Stones. So although... I mean, how would um, you not around Six that? Pistols and the Clash are saying we're not the bis- the Beatles, we're not, you know, the um, the Rolling Stones. In truth, I, everyone was. If yeah. you were 
that yeah sort of like thing. I get you want to sound and you want to you don't want to be compared to them but that's where your influence is going to be coming from mm. isn't it that's they, they were like the forefront yeah. of it all so where was the Sex Pistols that denied they liked the Beatles or Rolling Stones and they may well not off, but the mm-hmm. music would have still had a, I guess, Some an influence. Of, yeah. You couldn't really ignore them. The two, they no. were the two big, big. I mean, I wasn't around, but they were the two, one, two of the biggest British bands still are. Even in a sense. now, yeah. Um, so um, Generation X actually said we like the Beatles, we like the Rolling Stones. Um, so yeah, so Generation X signed a recording contract with. Chrysalis Records in 1977. So we're we're still talking like so it would have been oh. 1976. It would have been right at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they released three studio albums and were disbanded by 1981. Okay. So um, they had one top twenty single. King Rocket, which was which um, reached number eleven in 1979, and their last single release was 1980s Dancing with Myself, which flopped at number sixty-two. Right, so they were so after the band disbanded in 1981, Idol moved back to New York to start a solo career working with former KISS manager Bill Orcoin. Idol's punk-like image worked well with the glam rock style of his new partner on guitar, Steve Stevens. Together they worked with bassist Phil Fate and drummer Greg Gerson. His solo career began with an EP released through Chrysalis Records titled Don't Stop. And in 1980, and that was in 1981, and it included the Generation X song "Dancing with Myself," the one I just said was their last right. release, only got to number 62. But he took it as an. Uh, yeah, he he, he um, took it, and um, it was um, remixed, um, and obviously he then put it out. And he also done a cover of Tommy James and the Stondals song "Money Money." Idol's debut album, the self-titled Billy Idol, was released in July 1982. With the the 1983 single, White Wedding, reaching number one in Canada. As part of the MTV-driven second British invasion of 1982, which saw a sharp increase in the popularity of British synth pop and new wave artists in the US. So this was on the back of the first British invasion in the mid 60s, which had your rock pop bands, Beatles, Rolling Stones, The Who, The Kinks, Small Faces, mm-hmm. Jerry and the Pacemakers, that sort of um, eras, you know, popular music. The bands and yeah. Um, so Idol became an MTV staple with White Wedding and Dancing with Myself, which obviously actually was a Generation X song, which mm. he's repackaged. And yeah. So, yeah, so in ni- a lot of them. So he's obviously yeah. done a lot better with it. Um, so in 1983, 
Idol's second studio album, Rebel Yell, was a major success and established Idol in the US with hits such as Rebel Yell, Eyes Without a Face and Flesh Up for Fantasy. Eyes Without a Face peaked at number four on the US Billboard Hot 100, while Rebel Yell reached number three in New Zealand. His third studio album and final release of the 1980s was Whiplash Smile, released in 1986 and saw lead singer, sorry, lead singer, lead single, Sweet 16, peak at number 20 on the Billboard Hot 100, while making number two on the West German chart. So he's quite popular everywhere. He's had number one in Canada. He's done well in America. He's done well in New Zealand. And now he's doing well in Europe. Yeah. Um, While also making a top five in New Zealand, number three, and Austria, number five. So I always see that Austria and West Germany, or West Germany as it was then, but obviously Germany now, they're Mm -hmm. obviously from a similar region, as we know. Um, And they seem to have similar music tastes. They're not charts we speak about a lot, to be honest. No. When we do, when we do, they seem to go hand in hand, a bit like Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, like if one's going to be listed, the other Yeah, yeah. So um, no surprise, really, that it made the top five in both West Germany and Austria. So Idol would release a further five studio albums between 1990 and 2014. So, but, 1986 was the last time he released in the 80s? Or is yes. that just... In, right, okay. Um, well, that was when... Um, that was his last album. Right, okay. He's probably still released singles. I haven't got... Singles, um, like, As yeah. in those that weren't weren't in the top 40. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, that was his last... That was his um, last charting. A charting album. 80s album album and as yeah. i say sweet 16 with a lead single obviously also charted as well so it had been around 86 as well so um he released a further five studio albums between 1990 and 2014 but he never saw the commercial success of his two earlier um albums um between 82 and 83 which was when his first two albums were released. So not even including the 1986 album, just the, the very first two, the yeah. Billy Idol and Rebel Yell, they were his big successes. Yeah. And then obviously, yes, he had a... He, had, he, had the, oh, he still had success in, in the late 80s, 86. And he was getting... Like, around his main one was... In other countries, so there, what it yeah, wasn't. Yeah. It just yeah. weren't. A yeah. and it's the same with after that it had been just his hardcore fans yeah, still yeah, yeah. obviously buying it but it never done anything commercially mm-hmm. okay so you had hot in the city as being the number one yeah but i know it won't be now i know when it will started because they were both out the 80s and that's in the 80s so billy idol 1982 was his first solo single release and it was hot in the city and that got to number now what's what do we always say about soloists and after they leave a band how well they do 
depends on the band. It does. There's a big difference, I suppose, between Adam and the Ants and Adam and, yeah. and um, like Boy George, George and Culture Club, um, George Michael and Wham. Mm -hmm. This is Billy Idol and Generation X. I didn't even know Billy Idol was in a band. So yeah. 1982, Hot in the City, number 58. Shut up. Number 58. The reason you've got it is it was re-released in 1988, which is not even at the height of his, um, uh, what do you want to call it, um, popularity. Um, so re-released in 1988, number 13. That's a lot better, isn't it? But it's after people have found out who he is. That's obviously at the beginning where no one knows who he is. And then when he's at his height, and that's been released. You've like, oh, what's this? So, yeah. I'm surprised they hit that low. But then it's like, I'm not knowing his background now. And I never, ever usually put number ones as the first song. Like the first song for a number one. Um, but it was a good song. It was an 80s, like an all-round 80s song. Um, it was had quite a long intro. And that didn't even annoy me. It grabbed my attention and I could listen to that song on repeat. Okay, so this next song will tell you why he obviously moved to America, because you got to think he knows what the music scene is at this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he knows, and well, does my does my John does my style well, of music fit to... in? Yeah, yeah. This yeah. will probably tell you whether he was right to go to America, where he was having a you know he was successful. Yeah. Where a lot of artists aren't. Or if we should have stayed over here. So are you ready? 1984. Rebel Yell. Mm -hmm. Charted at number 62. Shut up. No. It was re-released in 1985. After the, obviously the success of White Wedding. And it got to number 6. But the original release was number 62, following the original release of Hot in the City at number 58. Two great what? songs, never and made it in the UK yeah. at that time. But what I don't get is what took the UK to decide to like him? Like, because he made it big in America? Like, um, that's what well, never I, I think happened. because, obviously, MTV, as oh, it says, yeah. you yeah. know, that would have had an influence over here as well, although we were later getting it. Um, to be honest, so it's hard to say whether that had an influence here because I don't think we mm. really got it until 1987. Might be before then. Oh, it was we were, that, we were behind. We were behind the US. Um, so whether that had an influence, it depends on the timelines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but otherwise, yeah, obviously, White Wedding was a good song. Obviously, commercial-wise, it done well. Yeah. And I suppose it's not as much as it's not as rocky as the previous two songs that we just spoke yeah. about. And at the time, rock wasn't early 80s, wasn't rock. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. You know, it was the synth the time pop, changed. Um, and mm. electro. And yes, you still had but, disco. Uh, disco still was doing it, but not really pop rock. Hot in the City wasn't rock for, that, for, for me. It was rock, but not like rock, rock. Like it. It was very, that's what made me think he was a bit of a synth pop because of Hot in the City, mainly. But I suppose it's also the fact that he wasn't known mm, true. as such. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying I don't know how big Generation X were. We've obviously not discussed them. They were they were disbanded before the oh, 80s or yeah. during, they hadn't had a hit in the 80s. Um, so I don't know, you know, I've heard of them now through Billy Idol, but I don't know what, not actually. you know, um, how good they were or how um, popular they were. Mm-hmm. If you haven't got a big fan base to begin with, when you go solo, fan. you're still not going to have that big fan base. So it's you down to your music to build that fan base up. Yeah. And oh, I yeah. guess Hot in the City, Rebel Yell didn't have, for whatever reason, the commercial, as in radio mm-hmm. airplay and stuff like that. I get, I yeah. guess yeah. Um, people yeah. didn't hear, people need to hear it to buy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, for whatever reason, people didn't buy it. So whether that's because they didn't hear it or whatever I, I don't know um but just just to um put it into con- context um hot in the city when it was originally released got to number 18 in australia mm. number five in austria number five in new zealand and number 23 on the billboard hot 100 so which is a ma- which is massive really completely you know Top 40 in America is big. Yeah. So, so um, it, it was top 30. Um, UK. Which is Rebel fine. Yell, on the other hand, um, was number seven in Australia, number three in New Zealand, and just outside the top 40 at 46 in the US. Which is still good. And White Wedding, which had already been released outside, because obviously it was his second single after Hot in the City. Mm-hmm. But they never released it in the UK because Hot in the City hadn't been a hit. It hadn't done well, yeah. But in Australia, it got to number nine. In New Zealand, it got to number five. And in the US, it got to number 36. So it was the UK. The UK just didn't hit with Billy Idol for a little no, bit. No, and then for whatever reason, White Wedding did when it was re-released over here um, in 1985 after whether it had been released here a bit originally but certainly didn't chart if it had yeah um re-released and as i'm we i'll let you know later where it got yeah so 1984 i was gonna say well because you said about rebel yell yeah Um, so rebel yell number 62 and then number six Okay, yeah. That one was more rocky than Hot in the City. Mm-hmm. And like it was shout style singing. Do you know what I mean? Um yeah. and then as you listen to it more, like at further along, I mean, um, he changed up his vocal range. So I did like that he didn't stick with the more shout style. Like he changed okay. it as the song went on. Okay. So nineteen eighty four, Eyes Without a Face, his biggest hit in the US, got to number four. On the Billboard Hot 100. Right. Um, also got to number four in New Zealand. And it got in the top ten in Germany. At number ten. Um, it got to number 18 over here. So that is probably the single, actually, that that was his breakthrough rather than White Wedding. Mm, Eyes yeah. Without a Face is what made him. Yeah, that was like top noticed. 20. Yeah. Um, it was a lot calmer, very soft. Um, had a good beat, doesn't take away from the song, and as it picks up along the way. So I, I did like that one. Okay. So then we have 1985's White Wedding, which I think is a is a staple of the 80s 
to be honest. It's a song that's on most okay. compilations. It's, oh, is um, it? Yeah. Yeah. And um, over here, we got to number six. Right. So Eyes Without a Face got in the top 20, and then that obviously just jumped that bit further. Um, yeah. White Wedding was my favourite. It's very rock, but it's catchy. My first impression of it was that it was very dark, but it's not. Um, and I don't even get annoyed at the instrumental on it. I think it's a really good piece of music. And obviously people agreed. Yeah. And on the back of that, Webble Yell was re-released and that also got to number six. So mm. big difference when it's number 62. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So 1986 then, To Be A Lover, number 22. It's got a good beat fast paced and his voice goes very deep in this yeah it actually got to number three in australia mm, doing good over there and believe it or not finland oh um, number six in the u.s on the hot 100 wow number eight in sweden number six in uh, sorry seven in switzerland um but the people that really loved it was new zealand number two wow so yes so 1987, Don't Need a Gun, number 26. Mm, yeah, this weren't a high hit. It was the same tempo throughout. Like, there's not much build-up in it. Um, and it had the, this, like, what is it that people do, like, with their guitar when they, like, scrape it? Uh -huh. It sounds awful anyway. It had that in it. I didn't enjoy yeah. that. Okay. Um, 1987, Sweet Sixteen. Number 17. Complete change, like not his usual stuff. It was like very heartfelt, a bit of a deep one um, and was definitely one of his least, less rockier songs. He still liked in New Zealand. I got to number three there. And as I think I'd already mentioned, number two in, New in um, Germany. Yeah. West Germany, as it was then. It's also top 10 in um, Australia and Austria. Shock. <laughs> Doing well over so, there. Yeah. 1987 again, Moni Moni, which I've already said was already released, um, had already been released in the US um, on um, the first, out from the first album. Mm -hmm. um, so it was then um, released again um, on his second album. And third out i don't know well i don't think it's on another album i think it's only on that album actually um and it got to number seven in the uk mm, that's good isn't it that's the second highest yeah it's um, actually the live version that was released right okay um it's very to the point um it's got a good build up very upbeat and it's just very rock i did enjoy it though for a rock song I didn't lis listen to the live version, but it's uh -huh. no different. So I, I just need to correct myself. The first version of Moni Moni was on an EP. Um, right, it wasn't not on an album. album. Yeah, it was right, on an EP okay. with the other so with the song from Generation X, just Dancing With Myself. Yeah, okay, okay. But yeah. Yeah. Um, 1990, we're going into now, so out of the 80s, Cradle of Love, number 34. Okay, I like his vocals, but the song doesn't grab me like, as a whole. And I just, I can't explain it, but it doesn't suit him. And I think it's just because of like how slow it is. It just a bit more stripped back and it. it's just not him. Like the fact. Okay. And then 1993, his last hit, 
certainly in the UK. Mm. Uh, Shock to the System number 30. Okay. Um, this was back to his normal stuff, you know, fast-paced, catchy, upbeat. Um, and the video got very weird. I could tell it was the 90s because of how he was dressed, but the video saw like a man, I like grow massive and basically pop out of his eye socket and oh it was just a bit too graphic for my liking very so shock to the system although yeah. obviously he took a while to get into the uk top 40 when you think that's that single got in and hot in the city and rebel yell their original incarnation or their original releases didn't it was the incarnation yeah. the re-releases re it did yeah. um shock to the system was at least a top 40 hit um however in america it only got to 105 so you can see his popularity is uh, so however yeah. new zealand oh, still love him number five huh. maybe you should have moved there next you like yeah. to move yeah. around should have tried there yeah so moving on to phil fearon um, I think he's disco, so I think he's very early 80s. Um, what I want to know is every song is like Galaxy featuring Phil Fearon. So who are they? So I'm sure you'll be able to tell me because it's all that. Um, and his songs, you can't get much from him. It's either that he's on top of the pops or like his artwork. Um, but like looking at pictures of him from his artwork or how he portrayed himself on top of the pops he looked like he's just up for a good time and he just dresses casually but yeah i'm guessing Ga galaxy from what i can work out aren't always the same people or if they are there's quite a few of them in whatever group or whatever they are like his back in that because they're not ever at the forefront it's only ever him so he's definitely like the the main um event and it could be something like um the like the Chuboy Army type thing for Gary Newman. Yeah. But I don't know. That's what I've worked out that Galaxy might be his like backing vocals and band or whatever. But I'm sure you're going to tell me. So I suppose the Galaxy bit, mm -hmm. and we'll go into it in more detail, but it's like Huey Lewis and the News. Yeah, yeah. Susie and the Banshees. Yeah. You know, it's that the, you know, um, Adam and the Ants. But he doesn't recognise them. And I find that really sad. Like, why can't he be Phil Fearon and the Galaxy? Or Phil Fearon's Galaxy? Like, do you know what I mean? Um, because every song credits them. Bar I can prove it. But even I can prove it had them in it. Oh, so um, yes. I haven't even got that. I thought that was just him. I'm sure I mean, when I I'm sure you obviously need the Galaxy. I don't know. Yeah, yes, that, sure. that definitely isn't credited as with him. Mm. You know, but then I suppose yeah, it's like Harry Newman dropped Tubeway Army, even though they still he still had a backing band, or although it wasn't necessarily Tubeway Army to be honest. Um, Julian Cope, Teardrop exp Explodes, is I suppose another one. Um, yeah, but I don't so know. You, yeah, I mean Lloyd Cole and the Commotions. That's a, that's an, another one. But they but he's not. Um... So, yeah, Mike and the Mechanics, which was Mike Rutherford, um, Bruce Hornsby and the Range, although he then had a different bands behind him, but Bruce Hornsby and the Range are the most popular. So, yeah, I see what you mean. Um, right. He wasn't known as Phil Fearon and no, Galaxy or, you know, Fearon, whatever. It was, 
Yeah. Really so I will, we will we will we will find out. So Phil yeah. Fearon, he's from Jamaica. He was active in the music business from 1982. So he's a bit late as far as some of them um, we've we've covered recently. Uh, singer, songwriter and a multi instrumentalist. So he played a host of instruments. Um, so R&B, post disco, as you correctly said. Uh, and yeah. funk. Okay. Yeah, I didn't. I only got like the disco. Like the songs were a bit more, you know, danceified uh, rather yeah. than R and B. So Fearon was born in the colony of Jamaica and moved with his parents at the age of six, but left by uh, to London. Um, he joined Hot Wax in nineteen seventy five but left by 1977, after which the band evolved to be known as High Tension, who was seen as a Brit funk pioneer. Oh, but okay. that was after he it's left. Word, right. They are seen as pioneers. Not that I can honestly say I've heard of them. Uh, but, um, yeah. So, yeah, they were funk pioneers in, in Britain. Um, Fearon then joined Candidate with a K, um, a group who scored a number 11 chart hit in 1979 with I Don't Want to Lose You. Fearon then set up a studio in his North London home and initially recorded with a group called Proton on Champagne Records. Fearon then conceived Galaxy. Right. As a band of four or five white guys that he himself would manufacture and write and produce for. So a bit like oh. um, Trevor Horn. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. After like Buggle. Yeah, and he'd, he'd done that with groups, you know. And I suppose in a sense, Stock Aitken and Waterman. Mm, definitely. They wrote the songs, they produced it. Yeah. So it was manufactured pop. Yeah, they were. They more done it with soloists. I mean, Banana Rama, you could say, were from that, or but they were that they joined them to help them get successful. They weren't yeah. manufactured. Brother Beyond yeah, yeah, is yeah. probably the closest we get as a band that were manufactured by um, by by that because they won a competition to record with them. Oh yes, yes, I do remember that. So yeah, but otherwise you're looking at Sonia and Rick Astley. Mm -hmm. um, and to a degree, I suppose, Jason Donovan and Kylie Minogue, in a sense. Yeah. Um, but they weren't in, they weren't groups. So anyway, so yeah, he had his own record studio and he conceived an idea to manufacture a, a group, as I say, of four or five white guys. Now, why it was, why it had to be white, I don't know, but mm. from what I've seen, it's white guy. Um, but then but he would write and thinking. produce. But in the um, videos I've seen, they're not all white. So well, that's what I'm saying. This is just you know what I've read. But whether it was an idea of getting the the blue-eyed soul as mm. as it was known, um, that you know, because that's what was around. I don't I don't know. It just said four or five white guys, but and it, as I say, it stipulated well, white, not guys. But, but yeah. Um, so anyway, his idea was he would manufacture them. He would white. He would produce. Um, but he would, me he would be behind the but scenes. Behind he wouldn't be fronting it or anything. Right, like okay. However, yeah. he yeah. was encouraged by a prospective record company 
to front the act after they were impressed by his performance on the demos. So obviously he did sing on the demo, but was obviously looking at getting a singer in. Mm-hmm. Is what you know? I'm guessing. Um, so Fearon's first recording as Galaxy with assistance from backing singers Julie and Dorothy was Head Over Hills on Insign Records in 1982, which went on to become a club hit. Fearon's first success came with 1983 track Dancing Tight, and over the next 15 months, a further four top 40 hits, including What Do I Do and Everybody's Laughing. And then following a quiet period, Fearon returned to the charts with a cover of Tony Astoria's I Can Prove It in 1986, which was produced and mixed by the hitmakers Stock, Aitken and Walton. Um, at the suggestion of Fearon's record company. However, it was after that he felt a bit of a... a a square peg in a round hole sort of thing. He he fell out of love. He just thought, what am I doing here? Because he wasn't doing anything. He was only singing on the track and, and it was being mixed yeah, and yeah. produced by Stock Aitken and Waterman. Mm-hmm. It was obviously at the request of his um, record again. company. So it's like, do they not trust me and all that? I yeah. guess, you know, so he, he just fell out of love in a sense. And then just stopped. Yeah. So record producing that he was doing before. Well, so that's right. So I got you to listen to the Ra band, Clouds Across the Moon. I was wondering where this was going to fit in. So, Fearon is said to be similar to the Ra band, which actually is Richard Anthony Hewson, R-A-H. So the Ra band was a person. Right. who had a number six hit with clouds across the moon in 1985 galaxy were not a true group of musicians but a front for an individual i.e fearon producing all the music in a studio environment with two female backing singers dorothy galdez and julie gore females right I was going to say there was females. Yeah, yeah. So they were the Batu backing singers, Dorothy Galdes and Julie Gore. And they supplemented the recording sound. Right. So obviously then when he um, went on top of the pops or had to do videos of that, he would have had session musicians as the Galaxy. Right. So the Galaxy never existed in anyone in particular. Right, I didn't think so because they were never the same amount of people, no. never the same people. No, I was at one point, so it must have been. But then you say he had session musicians, so I don't know. But yeah, yeah, I didn't think, and they weren't all white; they weren't all black. No. So like, his original uh, idea, by the sound of it, was four or five white guys. Designing. He would write the music, he would produce them, and they would front his idea, but he wouldn't be anywhere involved. He then got asked to be involved, and he he fronted it. He obviously still wrote the songs, he's, you know, and um, to a degree produced it, but he, he, um, he done it all with session musicians other than two backing singers, but otherwise, in a recording studio, it would have been just 
you know, just the him and the two singers. Yeah. And it was exactly the same. It was as the same con context done in the same context as the Ra band, which right. was R A H band, and Ra was actually a Richard Anthony Houston. So it was him, but he had these session musicians. He had this front for him. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, do you want to know what so, I thought of the band before you move yeah, on? Yeah, yeah. If we start but with that, then. I could have done without that. Oh. <laughs> and I was I like, like, like I was like, where is this going to fit in? It's not anywhere, anywhere near or similar to anyone that I've got. It was very futuristic. No. It was a weird video. They were dressed up as like robots or astronauts or something. Astronauts, um, I think. Yeah. I think she's. I think what it is she is the woman sing. is is getting in contact with her astronaut husband, yeah. who's only away sing. for six years or whatever. Well, no, it's that's what the. It's more. I don't know. I don't know how you. It weren't. It weren't like talent. It weren't anything special. So it getting to number six shocks me. Yeah. Okay. I'll put an Sorry. X next to our band. Um, we'll move on to who we said about, who we were actually talking about, which is Phil Fear. And then so 1983, Dancing Tight, which was um, put out as Galaxy featuring Phil Fear. Yeah. Got to number four. Okay. This was my favourite. It's very disco vibes, got good tempo. Um, it's. It's very calm, but then it gets you. Like it ha it's got that something that pulls you in. Um, so I did really like that one. Nineteen eighty three. Wait until tonight, my love. Again, Galaxy featuring Phil Fearon. Number twenty. Okay, yeah, this is quite slow, a bit bland. Like there's less to it. He's lost the disco part, but I guess that might be like in my head, he was only disco. Like you got a disco feel in all the songs. Um, but this one had less of it. But I guess that's then his other genres coming through that I didn't really think about. 1984, what do I do? And this is Phil Fearon and Galaxy. Mm -hmm. And this got to number five. Okay, this one was quite good. There's just not much going on with it, like, lyrically. Um, it's quite instrumental, uh, but it's very upbeat. Okay. Um, 1984, Everybody's Laughing. Again, Phil Fearon and Galaxy, number 10. Okay, you got a bit of a... So I still thought it was disco, but I did write down. And did you say that he's R&B? Yeah, R&B and right. So this one song, so I didn't put it as, as a genre because I, it was only this one song. Because there was like a change in instruments that had a bit of something else to it, it was very catchy um, and had different sounds. It had more of an R&B feel to it, but I didn't think it was enough that it, he would have done like more songs on a whole genre of it. But he obviously did. But that song was R&B more than disco. But then if you have a hit, in a genre, that class you as that genre, surely, wouldn't it? You yeah. Know? And then lastly, 1986, I Can Prove It, which, as I've already said, was a cover, um, got to number eight. And that, okay. as far as I know, was just as Phil Fearon. Well, there was, like, the backing singer, so I assumed that they were Galaxy oh. when I watched the video because he was on Top of the Pops with backing singers. So I assumed that was them. But maybe they were just there because... 
Um, it's a lot calmer, but the only letdown, it's the same tone throughout. There's no oomph in it. Moving on to the disco king himself then, Leo Sayer. Okay, yeah, I put him as genre, genre as disco. Um, he can go very high-pitched. Blooming Aqua weren't expecting his vocals when I started. Um, like, you make me feel like dancing. I was like, whoa, what is this? He's got a good vocal range. He's the one that really showed me he can go high, like his vast variety with that you can go high pitch and you can go deeper. Um, and also with his music, he's got his softer music, his more upbeat music, um, and he's put to the edge and um, like the dance vibes, like the disco vibes on songs about love. Um, like he sings about love in a non-love way, if that makes any sense. It does in my head. Um, as time went on, though, he did lose some of the disco. So I don't know whether disco is his only genre, but he lost the disco. Um, like it became more love song orientated. It took out the dance aspect. Um, I'm in love with his hair. He has good hair. Um, and he dresses very casually. There's not much to go off in his videos. It's um, just a focus on him. Um, more Than I Can Say, the song More Than I Can Say, has some good graphics in it. Other than that, he doesn't really play around with his videos. Okay, so Leo Sayer, born Gerald Gerard Q Sayer. But he's also known as Leo. Now, Leo. also, it, I couldn't find where he got his Leo from. Right. So it must have been a, a name he picked up. Um, and I was just reading back over my notes to double check. I hadn't read uh, anywhere about Leo, but no, I can't see anything. Um, but yeah, I couldn't find anything where the Leo come from. But on his name, it said Gerard Hugh Leo Sayer. Oh, so okay. I so don't know like, whether Leo was sort of like, like a, but it was like in inverted like, commas. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. So um, whether it was just a name that he picked up and it stopped with it. Whatever, I don't know. Anyway, he's from Shoreham by the Sea in Sussex. He's been okay. active since 1973. He's a singer songwriter and it's soft rock, disco, and blue eyed soul. Oh, okay. So maybe when he's gone that um, less dancey vibe, it's gone more maybe soft rock. Mm. Don't know. So Saya began his music career by co writing songs with David Courtney including Giving It All Away, which gave Roger Daltrey of The Who his first solo hit in 1973. Later that same year, Sayer began his own career as a recording artist under the management of Adam Faith, who signed Sayer to the Chrysalis label in the UK and the Warner Brothers label or Warner Brothers Records in the US. Sayer's debut single, Why Is Everybody Going Home, failed to chart. However, he achieved national prominence in the UK with his second single, The Show Must Go On, with the single reaching number two on the UK singles chart in 1974. His debut, so yeah, his debut album, Silverbird, co-written with David Courtney, was released in 1973 and reached number two. 
That's a bit. I don't, mm, I'll <laughs> the show must go on. Reached number two in 1974, but his debut album, Silverbird, co-written. Oh yeah, it's, sorry, it's our album. So yeah, so obviously the singles released after the album. So yeah, that's that's right. Uh, it was 1973 and reached number two um, in the UK album chart. That's I haven't got that right. Okay. That's why I was lost. So the album was released in 1973, and then his two singles. Um, so everybody goes home, which failed to chart, and then the show must go on, which got to number two in 1974. Right, okay. obviously off that album. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I was um confusing myself there, so apologies. <laughs> uh, say his subsequent singles were all major hits in the UK when they were released between 1974 and 1975. So, those two years, Leo Sayer was king. Literally for two years. This for, yeah. for the uh, he was up there with the Bee Gees, ABBA. But uh, they, well, they that's probably even too early for ABBA. But when was ABBA? I'm trying to think when, when they won that, Eurovision. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if that was probably too early for ABBA. Well, actually, yeah, when they were like twenty-six. Yeah, Waterloo, Waterloo. I don't know. So yeah, he was, he was, he was like the king of disco around that time. Yeah, for two um, years. Not really much to shout about, is it? Especially when like no. ABBA came in. Well, yeah, ABBA and the Bee Gees are your two main. But I, I suppose Bee Gees are on the back of 19, um, not, yeah, Greece. Yeah. You know, um, Staying Alive, Night Fever, Saturday Night Fever. So that's what made Bee Gees more than anything. Yeah. Where's Leo Sayer? Uh, ABBA um, was um, nineteen seventy four. Nineteen seventy four. So it was around that time. Around yeah. The same time. So, yeah, yeah I wasn't um, about it. So, Sayer recorded three in 1976. Sayer recorded three Beatles songs I Am the Woolworths, Let It Be, and The Long and Winding Road. For a Beatles themed concept film, All This and World War II. Sayer also scored five consecutive top 10 placings on the UK album chart between 1973 and 1977. So I want to say he was probably more successful in the 70s, especially with his genre then. Oh, definitely. He was yeah. the king of disco, as yeah. you know, as I say, um, or known for the disco. Um, so, yeah, so um, the peak of Sayer's career came in 1977 right. uh, when he achieved two consecutive number ones in the US oh. uh, with his disco styled You Make Me Feel Like Dancing and follow up single, A Romantic Ballad, When I Need You. Oh, in so 1979, his compilation album, The Very Best of Leo Sayer, became Sayer's first UK number one when topping the album chart. So Sayer had moderate success during the 80s with two top 10 singles. However, his three studio albums, Living in Fantasy in 1980, only got to number 15. I say only, number 15 is still good, but mm. you've got to remember it's on the back of three consecutive albums all yeah, being, so that's um, good, but not as good as he's at. In the top 10. World Radio in 1982 got to number 30 
And have you ever been in love in 1983 also got to number 15? So they were all charting outside the top 10, which up till then Leo Sayer probably wasn't used to. And his, his record company, let's say, would be saying, hang on there, <laughs> you're meant to be a top 10 album artist. And we've just had an album at number 30. You know, big difference. Um, so all his subsequent six albums between 1990 and 2022 didn't chart. So he did not. Didn't really repeat all that success no. he had in the 70s. No. So he's has, he, yeah. So he the 80s. But it's not gone. Yeah. Probably the 80s also saw Sayer suffer repeated setbacks due to a series of financial and legal problems. So as when Sayer and his wife Janice divorced in 1985, Subsequent financial disclosures revealed Adam Faith, his manager, had badly mishandled Sayer's business affairs and that much of the millions of pounds that Sayer had earned over the previous decade had been lost through Faith's questionable investments and business expenses. And it's probably the worst thing to find out when your career is on the downside. So he's like, in oh. the peak, he's earned the money, and then as his career's that to coming down, that he's finding out the money he earned when he was at his peak no that longer exists. I'd be absolutely fuming. So obviously um, the money was invested into companies that didn't make money or, you know, whatever. They, the money. Surely, surely he should have had a say. So, well, that's what you have your manager for, you know, accountants mm. and all that. So, um yeah, but, but you'd yeah. think he'd have a bit more nounce about him because of earning that side of money, but it just shows yeah. you. So Sayer sued Faith for mismanagement, and the case was eventually settled out of court in 1992. Then in mind, it came well, to life in, in 85 when his wife was divorcing him, and obviously they were sorting out finances and found out yeah. he had none as such um so it wasn't sorted until 1992 with Sayer receiving a reported payout of 650,000 i mean at least his wife couldn't rinse him of his money well she would have she would have still been entitled to something no, but i mean yeah but surely they would have been divorced by that point so she yeah, was but she would have still been entitled to it because he earned it while he was married to her no see i don't think that's right and it would have been a high well of course it is and it would have been a high profile case so she would have known about it anyway. It's not like he could just pretend or, you know, they've done my accounts. I've now got this money. I won't say nothing. I just really don't agree. They do, they do all the work and because you're married to them, you get. Well, of course. Yeah. No, you've not worked. So anyway, in 1996, so bear in mind, 1985, this all happened. 1992, it's all cleared. Yeah. So then in 1996, Sayer sued his new management after he discovered that his pension fund Shut up. allegedly mismanaged to around one million, despite spending more than £90,000 in legal fees. The case never made it to court after Sayer, uh, Sayer abandoned the case for financial reasons because oh, of cost. He's got no money. No, he's had to pay all the legal fees for 
the first one. Now he's got to pay again. Yeah. So he's got no money anyway. He's relying on getting all of that, and he. So, spoiler alert, but it's part of the story. Right. In 2006, Saya made a return to number one oh. on the UK singles chart when DJ Mech remixed Thunder in My Heart and um, literally. Why I know Thunder in my heart. It probably is, yes, from the 2006 yeah. version, which, in effect, became Sayer's pension. Yeah, because he's just then getting so, money off of that, isn't he? Because he would have yeah. um, owned the rights to it. Yeah, so he's been lucky both what both times, really, but yeah. he still lost money. Mad. Sayer received a Grammy Award in 1977 for You Make Me Fall Like Dancing as the year's best R&B song. So, Leo Sayer, 1976, You Make Me Feel Like Dancing, got to number two in the UK. Got to number one in the US, number two over here. Amazing. And do you know what? It was just unexpected. I was obviously listening and then he's midway through and then his high pitch comes in. But it really shows off his vocals and his talent. So it was a really um, good song. I agree. It is a good song. Um, and he wrote that as well. So, um, yeah. Um, 1977, When I Need You, number one. So it's number one in the US. It was number one in the UK. Ah. Well done, him. Um, it's very loving. I like the way it's sung. It definitely deserves that place. It is. Um, yeah, however, he wasn't the songwriter of that. No. Not that it matters. He didn't get really any of his money anyway. Oh, yeah, if you look at it like that, yeah. Uh, 1977, Thunder in My Heart. His version got to number 22. Still but as I've already time. said, in 2006, Mech, DJ Mech, who remixed yeah. it, um, it got to number one. That's still not with bad. With a whole though. total new audience. Yeah, it is a good song. It was my favourite. Um, really catchy, upbeat, and it makes you want to move. Yeah. You probably need to listen to the 2006 version yeah. and see if it is a version that. one you've heard of, which you probably would have. Because yeah, it had been like, around the time you would have been getting into music, where you'd have been, yeah, what, a 10, 11. 11. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah. Uh, 1980, we're going into now. More Than I Can Say. And um, it got to number two. Oh, he is quite amazing, isn't he? Um, it's repetitive and to the point, so it's quite simple. Um, but it does make you want to join in. Okay. Um, again, a song that wasn't written by him. Um, so the two songs that he wrote are actually his two best songs, in my opinion. You make me feel like dancing and thunder in my heart, even though you make you know, when I need you was a number one hit mm. on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, so, yeah, 1982. Have you ever been in love? Got to number 10. OK, hey, that's really deep and meaningful. It's his most lovey dovey song. Okay. Uh, 1982, Heart, Stop Beating in Time, number 22. 
very stripped back. Does tempo stays the same? That one let him down, you know. These last three aren't the best. Okay. And then, yeah, Orchard Road, released in 1983, number 16. Yeah, there's not much to that one. Um, I feel like you've got to be in a particular mood to put that one on. Okay. Moving on then to John Fox. So I want to know who he's inspired by, because he weren't what I was expecting. Well, we've, like we've, we've covered old. him before in this group. Have we? Yes. Okay. Don't recognise his name at all. Um, and he's very old 80s, so I was like, is he at the beginning? But if he was in a group, he can't be. Um, there's a lot of sounds, so there's not much else going on. All his songs are very similar and have the same basis that they're programmed in these things. Um, and I don't think he's a singer at all. And no, then... I'm, I'm, um, he's not one of mine, but he is a big legacy for what the 80s became. Right, okay. So... I can get that. I can get that with the sounds that he uses and everything. It's very yeah. obvious, so I can understand. He is. That. If I was to say yeah. that when we think that one of the first groups that what well, was synth pop wise the first group that had a number one was cars 1979 with gary newman and the tube army mm -hmm. uh gary newman he credits john fox right okay for um his influence and what have you um so um that's how big he was he just wasn't big he didn't have he the hits yeah, yeah, but yeah. he was there okay. and um the group he left went on to be much bigger than him and the uh, the lead singer that replaced him went on to be even bigger again right okay so we will come to that that you've got to look out for so yeah john fox born dennis lee um, he's from Chorley, Lancashire. He's been active since 1967. He's a singer-songwriter. He's a musician and he plays the keyboard, the guitar. Um, and obviously also when you think of it like that, you can do piano, bass. So, yeah, uh, yeah. post-punk, art rock, synth pop, new wave electronic. So very electronic side of it. Uh, then in mind, we've said he's been active since 1967. And, um, yeah, apart from the post-punk art rock, the rest is is your synth-pop new wave electronics. So, so, yeah. So during the 1960s, Fox embraced the lifestyle of a mod and a hippie. Okay. Um, his first band was called Woolly Fish, formed around 1967. Uh, whilst he attended Preston Art College. So in 1973, Fox formed a band that would eventually be called Tiger Lily, with bassist Chris Allen, guitarist Stevie Shears, and Canadian Warren Can would join shortly afterwards as the band's drummer. Right. Names you've not heard or heard? Tiger Lily. La Tiger Lily, we may have yeah. mentioned, I think. Yeah, well. I recognise Tiger Lily. Yeah. So in 1974, the band played their first gig 
and shortly afterwards, Billy Curry joined as a violinist. What what band's that? Tiger Lily. So they had a gig, and then shortly after, so they played their first gig, 1974, and shortly afterwards, Billy Curry joined as the violinist. Tiger Lily played a few gigs in London pubs between 1974 and 1975 and even released a single, Ain't Misbehaving, a cover of Fats Waller, an American jazz pianist. The B-side was the group's own written track, Monkey Jive. So, after several name changes, including... Fire of London, the two, the, the sorry, the Zips, and the Damned. The band became Ultravox with an apostrophe. Shut up! Ultravox I with an apostrophe. I don't Vox being mentioned with Ultravox. Well, I suggest you go back and listen. Um, in July nineteen seventy six. Right, but also Ultravox had p- changes. Yes. So well, one have... big change. Yeah. yeah. And well, they happened... changed their name for a start. But they're also Ultravox changed with an apostrophe. Pop, so no. I don't think I listen. Um, so anyway, Ultravox with an apostrophe um, were formed in July, or not formed, but became in July 1976 from Tiger Lily. The band's music fused glam, punk, reggae, electronic, and new wave. It was around this time as well that Chris Allen changed his name to Chris Cross. Um, The band signed to Island Records and released three albums between 1977 and 78. Their third album, Systems of Romance, or Ultravox with an apostrophe, abandoned the, or sorry, exclamation mark, not apostrophe, I keep saying apostrophe. It's an exclamation mark. Um, They saw Ultravox and the exclamation mark abandon the exclamation mark. Right, okay. And during the recording of the album, a single with the same name, System of Romance, was written, but the band didn't have time to record it, so it's not actually on the album. So the... Album Systems of Romance does not have the single Systems of Romance. But did they then release? They've released it though. We shall find out. Right, okay. So Ultravox were then dropped by their record label in January 1979. So the band undertook a self financed tour of the United States in February during which they performed three new songs, okay? Touch and Go, He's a Liquid, and Radio Beach. At the end of the tour, co-founder Fox left the band to go solo and was replaced by Midge Ewer. The more get no, Sergeant John Fox. I've never heard of him. Well, we go back and listen to because we'd have mentioned him because it was the first three albums was with him, and the first 
first album of Ultravox without the exclamation mark was what? with John Fox, Sound of Romance. Okay. So yeah. Fox signed to Virgin Records and achieved minor chart success with his first solo release single, Underpass and No One Driving. While his debut album, Metamatic, also included the Ultravox unreleased singles, Touch and Go and He's a Liquid, the two songs he was singing on the tour. Yeah, yeah. The album peaked at number 18 on the UK album chart. Fox then released his second studio album, The Garden, in September 1981, which um, reached number 24 on the UK album chart. Musically, it was a change from the first album of Metamatic's electropop and had more of a synth-pop sound like Ultravox's last album, Made with Fox, Sounds of Romance. Which was no surprise, considering The Garden included the single Systems of Romance. So the single Systems of Romance, which didn't get recorded for the album Systems of Romance by Ultravox, Mm -hmm. is actually on John Fox's second album, The Garden. Because obviously he was the writer. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Um, The album also included another song Fox had written and performed with Ultravox called Walk Away. By now, Fox had set up his own recording studio called The Garden, which was the name of his second album. Mm -hmm. In 1983, Fox provided some music for the soundtrack to Michelangelo's Michelangelo Antoni's film identification of a woman also his third studio album the golden section was released and reached number 27 on the uk album chart fox described the album as a roots check of his earliest musical influences the album release was followed by a tour fox's first live performance since ultravox in 1985 Fox released his fourth studio album, In Mysterious Ways, in October 1985, which spent just one week in the UK album chart when peaking at number 85. So hang on. Basically, a lot of his solo life, solo career, is based around Ultravox. Well, yeah, because that was his baby. He formed Ultravox. True. True. But obviously, a bit like like with Human League, where the founders wanted to go one way and the lead singer who they brought in wanted to go another. They split. The founders of Human League formed Heaven 17 and the new lead singer of Human League took Human League probably in the right direction because they had, I would say, more success. they 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 had major success. Heaven 17 had... They had limited success. They had a couple of good hits, but that was it, whereas Human League went on to be big. And I suppose, in a sense, it's the same with Ultravox. The founder, he wasn't sure if they were going the way he wanted. He wanted to obviously go solo and went solo. He had some minor success, but he was a songwriter. If he'd stuck with with Ultravox, they wouldn't have become the Ultravox we all know. That is true. But 
Majur come in and obviously he'd had success with Visage, Fade to Grey, which he wrote. Yeah. Um, he'd had success with, um, uh, I've forgotten the Rich Kids. You know, he'd, he'd had success, but nothing made, nothing big as, you know. Yeah. I mean, but Fade to Grey was big. big, but he wrote the song, but yeah. he, it was Steve Strange that sang it and it was um, Rusty Egan that was the musician. Majur was more the, the co writer of it. But yeah. Ultravox became Majur. And obviously, with Majur's influence and direction, they got big. Yeah. They were big. You know, they had loads of songs. And obviously, Vienna, we all know about, but Sleepwalk, um, the Tears one, I can't remember at the moment. But yeah, they, they had some big hit, obviously, ma massive hits. And we all know that Majur went on to have B Solo, had mm. a number one in that, and obviously was it behind um it's just and out. Um, so you know, it's just the, the way things went. John Fox, yeah. he was a big influence for a lot of people with his sound, no more than Martin Ware was with being boiled, the early human league sound. Yeah. But I suppose music moves on and evolves and Heaven 17 and John Fox, their music didn't as much evolve. Mm. So they sort of stayed still while others moved forward, which is what happened with Ultravox under the guise of Midjur and the same with Human League under the guise of um, the bloke who done Electric Dreams with George Amorodo's, the lead singer. I can't think of his name when it won to. But yeah, they they went, they obviously moved. Oakey, Oakley, Oakey. Oki. Open, oh, Paul and no. Oki, his name was, but I can't think of his name. Um, anyway, that he they went on to bigger success because they move with the times. They become more poppy, more listenable, I suppose. You know, like Erasure and that. Who you know, the the synth pop music had moved on. It got to number eighty five. The album was neither a commercial success or seen as an advance musically on Fox's previous three albums. Fox temporarily left his career in pop music, later saying he felt like he was divorced from any contemporary musical influences. However, he did produce, co-write and play on Pressure Points by Anne Clark. Fox later found inspiration in the underground house and acid music scenes oh, so of Detroit and London. And in the early 1990s, he released two 12-inch singles, Remember and Electrophia. Uh, Remember was in collaboration with Tim Siminon, best known for his Bomb the Bass project. Fox has since released a further 14 studio albums between 1997 and 2023, so last year, hmm. and is seen as a pioneer for the early use of electro synth pop with Majur saying he loved the synths, the, the, he loved the Systems of Romance album. And Gary Newman describing the album as his biggest musical inspiration. Oh, wow. So, you know, that's two so we definitely had... big players who went on to be, you know, 
seen as pioneers themselves yeah but they are actually saying that their influence was john fox who didn't even have that much success as a had no real success as such because ultravox early stuff wasn't success because it was before its time people didn't really get it yeah it evolved later but then i think i think that happens a lot in solo anyway yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's, like, even with John Fox, like a lot of his work. Uh, any soloist, I don't think, yes, they've had, um, they've, any soloist, you could say, yes, they have the initial success, but do they, because of where do they, they come from, keep not it? Because they'd have still yeah. had that success with the band because they'd have been yeah. the same song. And obviously, um, so, yeah, Adam Ant, have... Boy George, Nick Haywood. You know, yeah. after he left hair, and, um, Haircut 100, moderate success. And obviously, and like, John, John Fox. Fox didn't have loads of success with Ultravox, but he, his music was then, like, the amount of times that you've mentioned Ultravox. It was the influence for the rest that evolved from yeah. that. Yeah. And the same with Being Boiled. I think people see Systems systems of romance and being boiled as the two so systems of romance the album and being boiled the single from human league they were the two start points for what synth pop electro pop become that is where they were the first start they were the two probably given things yes the cars by gary newman obviously and electricity by omd but they come after these these were the two starting points that album and that single by human league and ultravox they were the catalyst for everything else yeah and john fox and martin ware were the two people behind those two bits of music or you know that album and that single starter pack kind of thing yes yeah okay so john fox once well the founder not once of the founder of ultravox or co-founder um limited limited to be honest with um his solo um so 1980 underpass number 31 okay yeah this one when i listened to it i was like how's this come into my week 1980 no one driving number 32 okay again a lot of program sounds long stints on the keyboards obviously others didn't like either 1980 burning car number 35 okay very electronic quite mysterious i was kind of listening like where's this going um, I feel like he could have done more with it because um, it's got quite minimal lyrics. I feel like he could have given it that bit, bit, bit more. And in 1981, Europe After the Rain, number 40. Oh, this was my favourite. Um, I like the piano sounds in it. And he's actually putting more into it. Like he's being a singer. There's more layers to it um, and just a bit more content. Like it's a bit more... Up my street, I'd say, but it's definitely, I'd say, um, his more thought-out one than just putting sounds together in a sense. So he maybe did evolve, but he just didn't have the success to evolve it a bit more, to have that energy and encouragement to say, yeah, you're doing it right, because 
Yeah. His chart placing is so not one it. top 30 hit, you no. know. And he's also seeing his baby Ultravox going on to, you know, massive. It, you know, it, Vienna yeah. would have been, you know, not long after this, and it was massive. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to Joe Jackson. Um, right. He's a bit different. So I've put a bit of folk jazz. And then I went with New Wave because I was like, it's a bit 80s and I think I might be way off. So I went with New Wave. Um, He can really sing. And I can actually see him with an album that people would buy and listen to in their cars. Like he's an actual artist, I'd say. Um, What a hairline he's got, though. Like he must have been either old or really unfortunate. Um, And he just seems like a normal bloke, although I did think he'd be younger um, because he looks old. But his hairline's like halfway back his head. Um, So. Yeah, but not much to go on because obviously you've given me three songs, so I don't want to give too much away with them. Okay. So he's, um, I've just looked, he's 69 now. Right. So that would have made him. So he's only, he'd be about the right. Hey? He would have been in his 20s, wouldn't he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, He should be about right for. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so yeah. About, about right, same as everyone else, so he's just unfortunate. Um, Joe Jackson, born David Ian Jackson, from Burton-upon-Trent in Staffordshire. He's been active in the music business since 1970. He's a singer-songwriter, musician, so he's a keyboardist and a saxophonist. Uh, he's rock, pop, new wave and classical jazz. Oh, so I've got Jack, I've got New Wave. I thought easy, and I wanted to write country, and then I remembered folk is a thing, and that's a bit less con- country. Um, uh, but, you know, I did get the jazz. But do you know why I said jazz? So there weren't many videos, and there was one album artwork, and his shoes looked like jazz shoes. And I was like, maybe he's a bit of jazz. And I listened and I was like, this could be a bit of jazz. It could be. So were they like black and white? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Funny, isn't it? Yeah. You know what they are, yeah. yeah. Um, so Jackson That's started fine. out learning the violin, but soon oh, switched yeah. to the piano and convinced his father to buy one for the hall of their council house in Ports- Paulsgrove, Portsmouth, where Jackson God, grew up. Never seen a council house with a piano. Yeah. So um so even though he was born in Burton on Trent in Staffordshire, by this time his family had moved to Portsmouth and that's where he grew up. Okay. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh so Jackson's Jackson's first band was formed in Gosport called Edward Bear. Not Teddy Bear, Edward Bear. Because Ted is short is the yeah, shortened yeah, version yeah, of yeah, Edward, and hence the Teddy Bear. But he actually called his group the Edward Bear, um, and I suppose that's because there was a a movement which were known as the Teddy Bears, Teddy, yes, the Teddies yeah. and the Mods. So yeah. yeah, so they called it Edward Bear, and later they renamed renamed the band Arms and Legs. <laughs> Sorry. The band, thankfully, I suppose you could say, going by the name, disbanded in 1976 after two unsuccessful singles. At this time, Jackson was still known as David, 
but he picked up the nickname Joe while performing with arms and legs as he was perceived to resemble the TV puppet Joe 90. Whether because he had a receding hairline, I don't know, because Joe 90 is a bit before my time. No. So at 20, David legally changed his name to Joe. Fair enough. In 1978, a record producer heard Jackson's demo tape and signed him to A&M Records. The next year, the newly formed Joe Jackson Band released their debut album, Look Sharp. The band consisted of guitarist Gary Sanford, bassist Graham Maybe, and drummer David Houghton. Their sound was a mix of rock jazz and new wave and was seen as being a similar vein as El- or seen as being in a similar vein to Elvis Costello the album look charge look sharp was named by magazine rolling stone in 2013 as being one of the best 100 debut albums when listed at number oh. 98 out of the hundred but it's still in there even in 2013 in 2013 yeah well the debut single is she really going out with him reached the top 40 in five countries include and and number nine in canada so it made the top 10 in canada but made the top 40 in five other countries in 1979 The band released their second studio album, I'm the Man, although the album followed a similar musical pattern and received good, um, though not as strong, reviews. It did produce Jackson's highest chart in UK single, It's Different for Girls. The band toured extensively during 1980 until they broke up at the end of the year when drummer Houghton, weary of touring and the fame, left the band. Bassist so May Obviously you're talking about the Joe Jackson band. Yes. And their biggest single was It's Different for Girls. Yeah. Well I thought that for Joe Jackson. Where so... is Joe Jackson? Right. So even it's, though it's, it's a bit like, like instead of it's, instead of Huey Lewis instead of Huey Lewis and the news he just called it Joe Jackson Band. Right. And that's fine. Like, just Jackson. to double check. I was like, right, okay. These I mean, it might as well be Joe Jackson and a band. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, he has it's Joe Jackson, but he needs band. You need a music. You need musical. He's yeah. a singer, songwriter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just wanted to double check. Yeah, so I was yeah, like, yeah. Hang so on, it's still the same thing. So throughout but, now, it's Joe Jackson Band, but it's yeah, Joe Jackson. It's Joe Jackson. But the band yeah, yeah. actually, anyway, disbanded. Houghton left the oh. drummer. Um, right. And um, yeah. So the, the band, the band, the band well, toured no, no. and they broke up at the end of that right. year, at the end of the tour. So the drummer, Howlton, he was weary of touring. He didn't want the fame that came with it and he left. Yeah. Bassist okay. maybe continued to work with Jackson. However, the full band would not reunite until 2004's Volume 4, which was the 14th studio album by Joe. Blooming heck, he gets them out, doesn't he? So, so yeah. 
So after the Jackson band disbanded, Jackson recorded an album of old style swing and blues tunes called Jumpin' Jive. And then in 1982, Jackson released his fifth studio album, Night and Day, and his only album to and it is his only album to chart in both the UK and the US top 10. Only album, that is. Yeah, yeah. Only album to have charted in both the UK and US at the top 10. So they've charted, it might have charted before, but not, uh, never got a top, top 10. But it yeah, got yeah. that album got in the top 10 in both the UK and the US. So yeah. it peaked at number three and four, respectively. So number three in the UK. Mm-hmm. While the two singles released, Stepping Out and Breaking Us in Two, were both US top 20 hits. And Jackson is associated with the 1980s second British invasion of the US, which we've already spoke about tonight with Billy Idol. Oh, yes. With White Wedding. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So on the back of MTV, mainly due to his single Stepping Out, which is seen as a jazz infused pop music track, which is probably why the Americans took to it, because they obviously love their jazz. Yeah. And they were just getting into pop. Put the two together and wow, you know, must have been absolutely like, something else for them. In their minds. Yeah. Um his follow-up album, Body and Soul, wasn't as commercially successful, but still made the top twenty in both the UK number fourteen and the US number twenty. While of the three singles release, you can't get what you want till you know what you want. Happy ending and be my number two. Only you can't get what you want till you know what you want. Charted in the US at number 15, while in the UK it was number 77. So he literally, his career went ching and then uh, ching off the, yeah. off the rock. Off there the weren't cliff any middle no it literally was one minute he's up the top next minute he's down the bottom uh jackson continued to record and release studio albums but has never seen the success of his early 80s highs jackson has since released 19 studio albums between 1979 when his debut album look sharp was released and 2023's what a racket so 19 studio albums between 1979 and 2023. Matt, so he is literally still going. Yeah. Yeah. Just loves the job, loves the music he and just, probably tours, but just not have the commercial. Is success. he someone that you would go for? Um, I only like stepping out, really. Okay. So, so you won't put him on your 80s people to see. Not really, no. I don't think he's got enough music, and not my type enough of music. music. Well, he's has, but not 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 stuff. I mean, his his music though, jazz infused pop, isn't my. I yeah, he's got a lot of albums, but it's just music that I probably wouldn't want to. As I say, apart from stepping out, you wouldn't sure. indulge yourself in it. No. Uh, so, Joe Jackson, 1979, is she really going out with him? Got to number 13. Okay, this was my favourite. It's something that you can really sing along to. 1980, it's different for girls. Got to number five. 
Um, it slowly builds up to the chorus. It's a bit quiet in the verses, um, but it's got a good beat. And then 1983's Stepping Out, number six. See, you say this is the one that you like. This is one that I least like. Um, it's like just got the same tempos throughout for me. It's very calm. It's not got that oomph in it. I think it's a song. I think it is. I'll have to listen and just double check. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. Um, otherwise, I don't really recognise the other two. Uh, Sydney Youngblood is our next yeah. artist to listen to. Yeah, so I've put him. I've put him as dance. Um, I could listen to his voice on repeat. He's got a good voice. Um, it's very deep. I don't know. It's just something in that voice. Beautiful. Um, and he's got a good energy about him. You only gave me two songs, and I didn't actually go and listen to more. But I did. I had the means to go and listen to more. I just didn't, and I wish I did because I really want to know what else he's produced. Um. He can move. I feel like he's very suave and I reckon he comes across as a bit of a charmer and an entertainer. Um, but yeah, there weren't much to go on, obviously, because I only had the two songs and I do regret not listening to more. I really should have. Um, I have no excuse as to why I didn't. Okay. So Sydney Youngblood, born Sydney Ford. He's from San Antonio in Texas. He's been active since 1988, so very late on. Mm -hmm. He's a singer and he's dance and house music. Obviously, the house, because ah, obviously okay. the genre house is music. where he is in the, that yeah, 80s yeah. Uh, trend of music. Um, yeah. So, from an early age, he loved singing and he won a competition at age just six in his hometown, oh. where his grandmother called him Young Blood for his vibrancy oh. to perform. Sydney played. In a number of local bands before enlisting into the US Army at 20 and serving in Germany for five years. When Ford returned home, he returned to music and this time decided to go solo, signing with Virgin Records and released a cover of Bill Withers' Ain't No Sunshine under the name of Sydney Youngblood. So, Ain't No Sunshine um, actually. Uh, is that the Ain't No Sunshine? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, got to number seventy-eight in the UK in nineteen eighty-eight. Wait, so he covered that? I can't yeah. see how he would have changed that. <laughs> so, like, yeah. that's such like a chill song. Yeah, and the music that he produces is just not. <laughs> yeah, well, that was his first solo song, a cover of "Ain't No Sunshine" by Bill Withers. As I say, got to number seventy-eight in the UK. I want to listen to that. Okay. And that was under the name now of Sydney Youngblood. Okay. Which is now it. his stage name. So Youngblood had two top 40 hits in the UK and Europe in 1988 and 1989 with his If Only I Could and Sit and Wait. Youngblood continued his success with the release in 1989 of his debut album, which also included his earlier cover of Ain't No Sunshine. His following three album releases, though, all flopped, with only 1991's Passion, Grace and Serious Bass charting in the top 40 in Austria at number 40. So only one song 
charted in the whole of Europe, and that was in Austria where it got to number 40. So, not something to shout about, really, is not it? Really, no. <laughs> um, however, in Switzerland, it got to number 39. So, there we go. That's a top 40 hit, well and truly, isn't it? Yeah. Um, while 1993 is just the way it is, and 1994's The Hat Won't Fit didn't chart anywhere. In 2014, 20 years after his last release, Black Magic was released. So and Black Magic, is that like a new album or is that a greatest hit? That is a new album. Blame Yeah, it didn't chart anywhere, but it's the fact that he'd released it. So 2020, also, 1994, The Hat Won't Fit was released, and in 2014, Black Magic. But also, what made him want to do that when he didn't have much success in the first place? What makes him think it's all changed? But that's the thing with musicians, isn't it? Why does John Fox continue? Why does, you know, um, who did we just talk about? Joe Jackson's had 19 studio albums or whatever it was. Yeah, said, you know, yeah but they they've done that the... continuously. Yeah, I get what you're gone. saying. It's um, when they stop and they've not had much success anyway. At least like Joe Jackson and John Fox had, I mean, they didn't have much success, but then they've continued. So then the people but, that are their hardcore fans, they've continued working for. And like you say, um, Joe Jackson, he just loves it. He just keeps going because, and sometimes it's for them. But when you're taking a 20-year break, what are you coming back for? I, I, I can't answer. I don't know, but like, that's what I he obviously like, wrote what, some what, songs or had some songwriting ideas. I don't. I don't know. Mm, but um, yeah. well, oh, all those like four listeners that I had back in the eighties—they'd be about now. Yeah, I think he had They're a few more than that. But let's let's see just how it successfully was. Okay, nineteen eighty-nine. If only I could got to number three. I, I don't get it then. Why is he had a number three hit with two songs? Okay. I really like his voice in this and the chorus really saves it. Um, it weren't like the best song. I wouldn't have put it as a number three if I'm honest, but um, the chorus does bring it in and his voice is beautiful. I do like it. And in 1989, Sit and Wait, number 16. Okay, this was my favourite. Um, I really like the music. Um, it's very repetitive, though. Um, I feel like there could be more to it, but it is what it is. Moving on, finally, to Jimmy Somerville. Yeah, now this was a good end to the week, I want to say. And I've put his genre, it's a bit of every, well, not a bit of every, I feel like there might be a bit of reggae or R&B or pop in there somewhere. Okay. I looked up the first song as well. So I, I was like listening to it and I listened to it more than once and I caught myself singing it. But obviously it's not English. And I was like, what even are they saying? So I looked it up and it means um, how to say goodbye to you in French. And I was like, oh, okay, that's quite nice. I quite prefer the French version. Um, he's another one that can go high pitched and he was exactly what I needed to end this week. I thought it was a great way to end the week. Um, mixture in sound, hence the different genres. Um, but it has similar vibes. Similar has similar vibes. So like he puts his own st stamp on it. So as much as it might sound a bit R and B, it's Jimmy Somerville. 
might sound a bit more pop it is Jimmy Somerville do you know what I mean um and I like how he can change it up and still be him um I looked at what he looks like now because I don't I've never said this before but what I like to do is type them into Google and it always brings up their most recent picture so then I can compare what they look like um, I don't know why I do it. I just do it. And I do it for most artists. So I did it for him. And I never usually mention it. But Blumenek, he looks good. And do you know how old he is? He's 62. He looks. He does not look 62. And I kid you not, he's not changed one bit. He's basically got a moustache now. That's the only difference. And I showed Connor and Connor laughed at me because I just couldn't believe that that is his, like, one of the most recent pictures of him. Yeah, anyway. Um he looks like he just has a good time in videos, whether that be dancing, he's like been driving a car in a video, he's dressed up. Astronaut is a thing this week as well. He dressed up as an astronaut in a video. And we had that extra one that he gave me. They were astronauts. Yeah. Um, he's oh, quite, man. you know, you know, like uh, in the 80s when you had like your baggy jumpers and they were like, uh, they kind of come back, I want to say. Everyone wears these like type of oversized jumpers. He wore them quite a lot, and he just looked really casual and comfortable, and still managed to look cool. Um, so yeah, quite yeah, I like what he's about. Okay, so do you know we've already mentioned Jimmy Somerville? Not oh, once, but twice. No. Oh, of course we have. Yeah, known oh, one of his, his biggest name. hits of the eighties. Jimmy Somerville is not a name that you forget. No, surely well. not. Well, his his biggest song is a song from his one of his bands, Small Town Boy. So Jimmy Somerville from Glasgow, Scotland, active since 1983, singer, songwriter, record producer, pop, electronic and dance is his genres. So Somerville grew up in Richill area of northern glasgow i think it's rich hill it could be ruck hill r-u-c-h well r-u-c hill um so ruck or rich hill right. so yeah uh, area of northern glasgow and moved to london in 1980 when aged 18 stroke 19 um so around 18 19 he lived in right. squats and immersed oh. himself into the gay culture and attended the so London gay he, teenage group. Is he so, gay then? Yes. Right, okay. Which is what Small Town Boy is about. So in 1983... It is. Yep. In 1983, Somerville co-founded the synth-pop group Bronsky Beat. Yeah, I wouldn't have remembered their name. When you said Small Town Boy, I was like, I recognise that song title. I do know that song. Wouldn't so, be able to tell you that it's them. The yeah, band released one album before Somerville left, with debut with that debut album being The Age of Consent, uh, which reached number four on the UK album chart. The title of the album was a poignant um, protest, I suppose you could call it, um, uh, pointing out that while the age of consent for homosexual acts had been reduced to 16 in many European countries, it remained at 21 in the UK and it wasn't even legalised in Somerville's home country of Scotland until 1981, by which time Somerville had already left and moved south, which was obviously one of the reasons for him moving south. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, lead single, Small Town Boy, the band's debut um, release, reached number three on the UK Top 40, but did make number one in Italy, Belgium and the Netherlands, as well as number one on the Billboard US Hot Dance Club Play chart. The track was a co-written by the three members of Bonsky Beat, who were all openly gay. And the track um, was the experience of being young and gay in the 80s and the soul searching to address homophobia, loneliness and family misunderstanding. So Somerville and Bonsky Beat, of mm-hmm. which Somerville was like the, the, the lead, the, the front man of, um, yeah. they were probably pioneers in gay music they were openly gay they which were, a lot yeah, yeah, yeah. and they would sing there. about it they yeah. you know where was george michael uh Took freddie mercury they didn't played on their... way. um jimmy somerville and bonksky beat did. did and they yeah, even yeah. spoke about it with as i say the age of consent being their album the small town yeah. boy being about a gay boy so they they didn't hide behind you know the charade they just went out and used music to get across they protested through music yeah yeah, not in a horrible not in a political way no no no, exactly um so yeah um so after leaving bronsky beat in 1985 somerville formed the communards with richard coles the TV reverend Richard Coles, as he is now, mm-hmm. and now author as well, isn't he? He's having yeah, he success and... with books as well, like yeah. um, the other one, the the uh, pointless bloke. He's done the same like murder mystery. Richard books. Osman. That's it. Um, so the duo released two albums, with the second album, Red, reaching number four on the UK album chart. Um, so very similar to Age of Consent. Um, they had a number one in the UK singles chart with their cover version of Don't Leave Me This Way, which featured the vocals of Sarah Jane Morris. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was funny because you had Don't Leave Me This Way. Jimmy Somerville, the bloke, sang the high-pitched voices. Sarah Jane Morris sang the deep voice. And it worked well. Um, I think it was that one. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, the single was the lead track on their debut album, Communards. Uh, the lead single from the Red album was another cover, this time of Jackson 5 single, Never Can Say Goodbye, which reached number four on the UK Top 40s chart in 1987. The duo split in 1988 as Somerville pursued a solo career while Coles was ordained as an Anglican priest in 2005. (laughs) And is now a TV personality rev who has appeared on Strictly Come Dancing, among others, and also an author. Somerville released his debut solo album, Read My Lips, in November 1989, which included the covers of You Make Me Feel Mighty Real and Comment Tede Dia Adur. Something like that, anyway. It's French. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, which was a duet with June Miles Kingston. While You Make Me Feel Mighty Real was an uplifting disco song, the album peaked at number 19 
on the UK album chart. And this was the highest Somerville charted from his six studio albums released between 1989 and 2015. Although his greatest hits album called The Singles Collection, um, 1984 to 1990, which included both Bronxky Beat and Comenade songs, did reach number four in 1990. So literally... Age of Consent mm-hmm. with Bronsky Beat, number four. Mm-hmm. His second album with the Commonards, Red, number four. And then his solo album, which he released via a um, singles greatest hits collection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which included the single comment de de droit, whatever it is, a <laughs> um, That also got to number four. So Jimmy Somerville's highest charting albums have always been number four. He should get that tattooed on him. <laughs> Somerville also sang on the second coming of Band Aid Project at the end of 1989. Um, his best charting written single as a soloist was 1995's Heartbeat, which reached number 24. Somerville was nominated for a Brit Award in 1991 as Best British Male, but lost out to Elton John. However, he was in good good company because the other nominated artists were George Michael, Phil Collins and Robert uh, Robert Smith of The Cure and Van Morrison. Well, what a load of people to go up against. Some... um, (laughs) I don't think he was ever going to win it if you saw that no. on a bit of paper no. anyway. But, yeah, it's good, still good company Completely. to be in. And, at yeah. least, and he was nominated. So. Yeah, alongside those. So at least you're yeah. Yeah. being recognised. So, people. Jimmy Somerville, Solos. Mm-hmm. Um, 1989, Comment de Droit à deux. I really can't say it. I'm not French. I thought it was Comment de Droit well, you know. listen to it, so it probably is. You it's, said it much better yeah. than me. I say it as I see it. Commented dire adieu. <laughs> I'm, um, I know it's wrong because you never say what you see, even though you're told to say what you see. It doesn't work with foreign languages. It, it got to number 14. It got to number 14 anyway, and it is a good song, even though it you was my say, it's foreign. It was my favourite. I was just like, I have no idea what they're saying, but it's really catchy. It's one that I've gone back to. It's my favourite. Such a good song. But I have no idea what, like, I looked up the title because I don't have a clue what we're singing about. But yeah, Yeah. it's a good one. Um, And that's good because that was his, as I say, he's obviously had two groups throughout the 80s and he's really a 1990s soloist. But that was 1989. Right, so that was his 90s. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And I, I've seen him quite a few times. He does the rewind. And at rewind, oh, okay. he, does, he does, he mainly sings. Like he does his and promenade. I think he probably does You Make Me Feel Mighty Will. But that's that's it. He doesn't ever sing that. Um, probably because he can't. I don't know. Um, 1990, You Make Me Feel Mighty Will got to number five. Feel good. What was like? It was really needed. Like it just had that upliftingness. But I um recognised it a bit. I don't know why I recognised it. Okay. 
1990, still read my lips. Enough is enough. Number 26. It's a bit on the quiet side, but it has that build up and gets you moving when it does get there. Um, The backing vocals add that bit of um, layer into it, like a bit of something else. Okay. Um, 1990 still, and to love somebody, number eight, a cover of the Bee Gees is someone's, I can't remember who it was now, but it's someone else's song and he covered it. Okay, this is really stripped back, um, but it gives him a chance to show off like his vocal talent, so like that, and it's a bit on the slower side as well. Uh huh. Um, and then 1995. Um, heartbeat reason I've included that is it was his last so obviously he does a lot of covers and heartbeat is his but it wasn't this got higher than read my lips so it's his highest placing highest um, self-penned song song. so yeah yeah, he wrote it it got to number 24 in 1995 bearing in mind obviously he started off in the early 80s with Bonksy Mm. Beat it's you know, yeah. he's still getting top 40 Did with well, his though. own songs. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I like that it's a pure focus on him and his vocals. Um, and this one shows off his vocal range as well. Okay. So that brings us to the end of this penultimate male mm. soloist episode. Um, yeah. Just need to find out your... Did I influence you? Hit or miss? Mm. Um, Billy Idol. Uh, Billy Idol is a hit i really enjoyed him he was um really good to start the week off i really enjoyed it i liked hearing that all the 80s side and like how he's used a rock and it weren't too much in your face i wasn't too sure about that one whether that would be or wouldn't so that's a that's a good one uh phil fear one miss so i thought that might be more up your street disco-y no but i don't know it just didn't have the same feels that it should have done I don't know. There was just something missing from him. You know, but Leo Sayer, did he? Because I'm expecting Leo Sayer to be a tick. He is. So I was on the fence about Leo Sayer because as it went on, his later songs let him down. But then I'm like, I did actually enjoy him overall anyway. And I did like his later songs, just not as much. So he's a hit. Okay. Uh, John Fox. I'm guessing that's a miss. Yeah, really not me at all. I didn't think so somehow. Um, Joe Jackson. Joe Jackson is actually a hit. Mm. Yeah, I really liked him. And I do want to listen to more songs by him. Okay. Um, Yeah, there's just something about him that got me. Uh, Sydney Youngblood. He is another hit. And as Ooh. much as I realised I spoke about him, especially towards the end when you were saying 20 years later, and I was like, 20 years? Why would you like wait 20 years to get another one out? It sounded like I really didn't like him. I just don't understand why people do that, regardless of whether I like him or not. I did really... I, Sydney Youngblood, I wish he produced more. But he obviously has. I just haven't listened to it. And like I said, I regret not going and listening to any uh, extras. So. Okay. And lastly, Jimmy Somerville. He was the biggest hit this week. 
<laughs> he was my favourite artist this week. Oh, um, it's a shame he wasn't at Rewind this year because he is good uh, at Rewind as well. Um, um, no, his music is more me. I'd buy an album. I've got it. I've got his um, greatest hits or not I mentioned. Okay. And then lastly, Richard Anthony Hewson. No. Wait, I don't even think we need to mention that. That's just awful. <laughs> the Raw Band, the Richard Anthony Hewson RAH band, which wasn't a band at all. Um, I didn't include I only include it because it came up in my um it was um mentioned for Phil Fearon, and I thought you should listen to it. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll take that. Four four, five, yeah. five out of seven, five out of seven. Yeah. Just yeah, two misses, yeah. Phil Fearon and um John Fox. John Fox. So yeah. um, I'll take that. Yeah. Okay. So Next. all it means now is for me to give you the names that are remaining, really. I'm yeah. sorry for anyone listening who had a solo career and are not on this episode and haven't been up till now, because this is the last one. Uh-huh. This list of names will be the very last male oh, soloist male. we discuss. Yeah. Okay. So, are you ready? There's yep. seven of them, as there has been for the last couple of weeks now. Yeah. So, Luther Vandross. No. Um, Bobby Brown. She no. Malcolm McLaren. No. Terence Trent Darby. No. Bill Bailey. Nope. Stephen Tintin Duffy. No. And Steve Arrington. No. These are all completely unknown. Well, this will be an interesting week. Okay, so just to go over them once more. Luther Vandross, Bobby Brown, Malcolm McLaren... Terence Trent Darby, Bill Bailey, Stephen Tintin Duffy and Steve Arrington are the names of the last episode. I will get listening when you send over that song. Yes. Okay. Yeah. On that note, I will say goodbye. I will get those songs to you and um, we'll discuss next week for the last episode. Of yeah. Dad Educates Daughter on 80s male soloist. Yeah, I look forward to it. Okay, bye-bye. All right. Bye, Dad. <laughs>